This morning, I want to ask you to follow along with me in your Bibles. I've been accused more than once of moving so quickly that that's kind of difficult to do. And um, I think you understand, though, that when we're studying through a passage, when we're studying through a book of the Bible, when we're focused particularly on one text of Scripture, what theologians uh, in ages old have called a pericope, which is simply a, a, a section of text that's connected. There's a seeming beginning and end to that passage. That what we're really doing is focusing particularly on that passage. And so many times when we move out of that passage, it's not vital, it's not crucial that you turn in your Bible elsewhere when we refer to other passages. That's why I tend to move a little more quickly than what might be comfortable for you, although I'm willing to try to slow down a little bit if you'll promise to try to speed up a little bit. So today is different. Uh, This morning what we're going to be doing is more of a doctrinal study. We're going to take a look at the doctrine of evangelism. There are numerous passages in the Bible that we could go to singularly and expand what's taught in that passage from the heart of Paul or from the heart of Peter or from the heart of Isaiah. But having done that, we now want to take a closer look at the the whole of Scripture with regard to evangelism. And so I want to ask you to start with me by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And starting in verse 17, Paul says here, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's a phrase you need to hold dear. That's a phrase that you need to lean on. You need to think about when you think about your role as a Christian in a lost and dying world. The ministry to which every Christian is called is the ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to explain to you some things. I'm going to point out some things that you're not called to, that you may have been told you were called to. You're called to the ministry of reconciliation. There's a common phrase in our culture known as irreconcilable differences. And that's your problem with God, and that's my problem with God. There were, if you are in Christ, irreconcilable differences. God demands holiness You are utterly unholy. We're born into a condition of sin, sinful state. And so the the differences are irreconcilable. You can't do anything about it. God won't do anything about it in terms of lowering the standard. You can't arrive to the standard. He won't drop it. But this concept here in 2 Corinthians 5 comes on the heels of Paul having spent a great deal of time emphasizing a need for understanding and depending upon the gospel. The gospel is the source of this reconciliation. Paul goes on here in verse 19 saying, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
Your problem, my problem, is that our trespasses are counted against us. And so in order for us to be reconciled, those trespasses must no longer be counted against us. We must have a clean account. We must have a righteous account. We must have a holy account. And because we are not holy, we are not righteous, we can't do anything to clean up the unclean account. So we need help. We need more than help. We need to be revived. We need to be resurrected from that dead condition, that sinful and depraved state. Paul goes on in verse 20 and says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Okay? He's speaking here to those who are in Christ. We are ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is? He, he represents the embassy. He represents the nation that the embassy represents. If you are representative of Jesus Christ, you're called to take the ministry of reconciliation to those who are outside of the Christian nation, if I can say it that way. Those who are not allowed to enter the embassy. They don't have the authorization. You have the authorization, but you not only have the authorization to enter the embassy, you are called to leave the embassy. Take that message to those who are outside. Therefore, verse 20, again, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. See that? As though God himself were pleading with those who are not in the embassy, those who are not part of the priesthood of people that belong to the Lord, God himself is pleading or exercising a call through those who are the ambassadors. He goes on. He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. This is our message. This is what we are to tell people. Yes, we are to plead with them. We are to be so desperately and deeply concerned about their souls that we would understand what the text of Scripture says. But to also understand what it doesn't say. To understand the ministry of reconciliation means to examine it in the Bible. That's what we want to do. And here it is. Verse 21. Speaking of God. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin. Now that separates him immediately. As you're reading through this, as anyone's reading through this, as anyone's listening to this message, this is clearly an expression of a drastic distinction between Christ and us. God made him who what? Who knew, who had no intimacy with sin. He knows about sin. He knows what sin is. That's not the point. But he has no experience with sin. God made him, the Father made the Son who knew no sin, who had not sinned, to what? What does that mean? I mean, in our vernacular, that's not grammatically acceptable. You don't make someone some other entity. This has to do with something that is of immense theological depth. It's not something you want to sweep over. It's not something you want to give a casual reading to. It's something that requires meditation. It's something that requires study. And I'd say at least start with some meditation. At least acknowledge as you read that, that in our language, this is a grammatical problem. 
It's not how we normally speak. Jesus is not saying, I feel like sin. God is not saying, I'm making Jesus to feel like sin. So there's really nothing that I'm aware of in our vernacular that is tantamount to this, that's parallel to this in any way. When Jesus becomes sin, as the text indicates, what's happening here, as we are told in the Gospels, is that he is taking on the sins of those for whom he would die. And so in essence, taking on the sin, he takes on the guilt. And as Isaiah 53 assures us, he takes on the shame. Taking on the sin, the guilt, the shame requires that he take on what? The penalty. This is the message of reconciliation. This is the solution to the irreconcilable differences between a God who will not lower the standard and man who cannot arise to the standard. What does God do? He, in the deliberations between His Son and the Spirit, determined in eternity past that it would be best for the Son to become man, for the second person of the Trinity to be born into flesh. God would become a baby. And by doing that, he would then live by the power of the Spirit through human obedience. Not divine obedience. Human, Spirit-filled obedience to his Father that he would do what man has not done. That Jesus Christ himself would fully obey his Father's commands and so therefore become what? Substitution. See, the significance of Jesus' death is, yes, bound up in the great reality that the God-man died, but the significance for you and me in understanding how we must respond is that he is man. That he obeyed his Father entirely, without flaw. He was without sin, and yet what did he do? He became sin. So by becoming sin, as we said, he now stands in the way of God's wrath. And by absorbing God's wrath, by taking it on, we then somehow theologically become the righteousness of God. He died on our behalf. See, this is the message. This is the message of reconciliation. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, as you know, we are told that the gospel is not only the death, though, of Jesus Christ, it must include the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says there that he who is interested in Jesus Christ in this lifetime alone is, of all men, without hope. He's hopeless. He says your faith is worthless without the resurrection. This is the message of reconciliation. That mankind will be reconciled to a holy God in having been made holy. As 1 Peter 3.18 has told us, the just died for the unjust. So we are to have a heart of compassion. We're to have a heart of evangelism. It's incumbent upon us to exercise some sort of self-examination every single day, asking the question, is my desire for the lost to no longer be lost? And why do I have that desire? I'm going to talk to you here now about some things that 
are erroneous ways of thinking about evangelism. And my hope would be that this would not restrict you in your evangelism, but that it would liberate you to actually engage in effective biblical evangelism. Why would you share this message of reconciliation? How would you go about doing it? Is the pressure on you? You ever sense that, you know? Oh, here I am at the gas station. $20, $30, $40. I got to share the gospel with somebody. Oh, here, here comes a guy. Oh, but my tank is almost full. What do I do? There's no time. I don't want to pretend I'm still putting gas in my car. There's a guy behind me who's waiting on me. You ever sense that pressure? You ever been through an evangelistic program that tells you you ought to be looking to share the gospel with every single person you ever talk to or see? You ever had that pressure placed upon you? Or someone talks about himself as if he is an active and effective evangelist, and so he asks you manipulative questions on a regular basis. When's the last time you led somebody to Jesus? You ever been under that pressure? Had somebody rain down on you constant efforts to uh, help you feel less significant because you're not doing what they're doing? You wonder, why do they have that fervor? And I don't. I'm deeply convinced that as we take a careful look at the Scripture, not comprehensively, we're not going to look at everything related to evangelism in the Bible, but we're going to look at a lot. And I believe that After we're finished today, you will not only feel liberated from those external, secular, manipulative tricks that some attempt to exercise on others as well as try to press upon some who would do the same thing. I'm convinced you'll not only be liberated from that, but you will be liberated too and excited about genuinely heartfelt biblical evangelism. And there's a sense in which the the pressure will be off. And I, and I hope you're excited about that. I want to share with you what evangelism is. Specifically, God's purpose and plan for it. But in order to do that, first I want to share some things with you that are not evangelism. Things that are not evangelism. Number one, pragmatic recruitment. Pragmatic recruitment. You say, what in the world is Pragmatic. Pragmatism has to do with what works. Okay? You, uh, you've ever been involved in cleaning your house. You say there are some things that work better than other things. And so it's pragmatic. And that's good. You say, I'm going to save time, maybe save some money. I'm going I'm to be a pragmatist when it comes to that. Or when it comes to your money, you say, you know, pragmatically speaking, if I spend my money here and I save here and I invest here, this seems to work better than other things that have not worked. That's pragmatism, and that's good. But unfortunately, the concept of pragmatism has applied, has been applied to evangelism within the church in such a way that folks are just looking for recruits. Whatever we can do to get them in the empty chairs. Whatever we can do to get them in the doors. Rick Warren is well known for boasting that if he has 45 minutes, he can get anybody in the kingdom. It utterly and completely denies everything that the scripture says about the church and about biblical evangelism and about God's sovereignty and about man's responsibility. Billy Sunday, the well-known pseudo-evangelist of years gone by, used to say, if I can get him to shake my hand, I can get him into the kingdom. And so these are really faulty ideas about what it is to be engaged in evangelism. 
What is man doing when he does that? He's exhibiting a very high view of himself and a very low view of the man that he's evangelizing and an even lower view of the God who is sovereign in all things. It's really pragmatic recruitment. Man has learned to do things that work, but for what purpose? It's building the church role by doing what seems to be effective. Many times it's entertainment-based appeal to the flesh. We've often said here, we will never, ever, ever design or plan anything in an effort to appeal to the flesh. You say, well, wait a minute, though. If you're faithful to the scripture, if you're faithful to the heart attitudes that the Bible calls us to, won't there be times that you will appeal to other people's flesh? Absolutely. Of course, because the unbeliever wants people to be nice to him. The unbeliever wants people to be compassionate and kind, and we're called to be compassionate and kind. But what we're saying is that can't be our design. It can't be our design to appeal to the flesh. Otherwise, then we begin to cross the line into all other kinds of things. Because if what we're looking for is an appropriate response or a, a pragmatic response, then where do, we, where do we draw the line between what's right and what's wrong? I've often thought of this as Sunday morning sensationalism. You get them there on Sunday morning... And surely you can do enough to get them to you know, make a decision or do something that seems to connect them. This is not evangelism. And by the way, Sunday morning is not the place for evangelism. The design of the corporate worship service within the scripture is not to win the lost to Christ. It is to exalt Jesus Christ and to edify the believers. What I'm doing right now is attempting to equip you to evangelize the lost, but not in this room. You say, but what if that happens? We shouldn't do that? No, you should do that. <laughs> right? If God throws you a pass, catch it. You get an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who seems to have rejected the gospel, and it happens to be on a Sunday morning, well, by all means, do it. What I'm saying is that's not our design. That's not the biblical blueprint. Number two, with regard to things that are not evangelism, number two, fleshly decisionism. Fleshly Decisionism. Again, things that appeal to the flesh. Charles Spurgeon said that we often do not present the gospel well enough for the non-elect to reject it. Let me say that again. He said we often do not present the gospel well enough for the non-elect to reject it. In other words, we present something that anybody can accept. We present something that does not require Holy Spirit regeneration. We present something that most people would say, well, yeah, I like that, sure. So we paint Jesus in colors that the world accepts. We redefine him. We make him something other than a God of wrath, as the scripture depicts him. Uh, we focus on his love, other than all of the attributes that the Bible gives to him. This is really pressuring dead souls to make themselves come alive. It's asking someone to reach from the hospital bed, having flatlined, and grab the defibrillator themselves and revive their dead heart. And so we ask them to do something that they can't do. Many times it's the idea of asking Jesus into their heart. Where's that idea in the Bible? Friends, it's not there. It does not exist within the scripture. And yet you've heard it so many times. You're, you might even be thinking right now, well, that's, that's not possible. I, of course that's in the Bible. It's not. 
Is Jesus in your heart? Yeah, the book of Ephesians tells us that he is, but you didn't invite him there. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, I want to say to to folks who believe that idea, why is it that you don't believe what the Bible says about the condition from which God saved you? Why is it that you don't believe that you were totally depraved, dead in your trespasses and sins, utterly sick, Jeremiah 17.9 says? Why do you believe that you somehow had the ability to lift yourself out of that dead condition and ask Jesus into your heart? Wouldn't it be a good thing to ask Jesus into your heart? I think that would be a good thing. How is one about whom God has described him as having every thought and intent of his heart only evil? How can... One with that description, according to Genesis 6-5, how can he do a good thing like asking Jesus into his heart? See how that utterly waters down the significance of man's sin and also at the same time utterly waters down the significance of what God has accomplished? You see, God has raised dead souls who could not raise themselves. So to look back on that experience and say, well, I asked Jesus into my heart. Dead man doesn't do that. He doesn't make Jesus Lord and Savior of his life. He does not commit his life to Christ because he wouldn't and he couldn't. He doesn't accept him. He does not rededicate his life to Christ. You remember that phrase that you used years ago? Remember that? Well, you know, I got saved when I was five, but then when I was 12, I got more serious about it. And then when I was 17, I rededicated my life. You rededicated your life to something that never had an impact? Why would you rededicate your life to something that had no significance in your life? If you're dead, you don't rededicate your life to something that's alive. See, this is the problem with fleshly decisionism. It leads people into thinking they have done something that they are not able to do. It gives them a false sense of security and it results in massive false conversions because people are running around saying, well, this is what I did, so this is what you need to do. So they speak of their own false conversion. Or how about this? They actually speak of a true conversion but in false terms. So the person himself might actually be converted. He might have been brought from the dead unto new life. But what happens when he himself, who is actually a Christian, gets the terminology wrong is that he then influences other people into false security by persuading them to make some decision in the flesh. And then he says, welcome to the family of God because of the decision you just made. This is not the gospel. It's not the ministry of reconciliation. Number three, spiritual ambition for spiritual achievement. Some things that are not evangelism. Here's a third one. Spiritual ambition for spiritual achievement. So what are you talking about? This is the person who thinks he's better than everybody else in his evangelism. He thinks that he's out there doing stuff that other people won't do, and he asks questions like, why won't more people do what we're doing? It's a spiritual achievement. It's really legalism. It's thinking more highly of self as a result of somehow or another thinking that man himself is, that he himself is brought himself into a place of passion for the Lord that only the Lord can give? See, if if you're critical of others who aren't doing what you're doing, you've slipped into the legalism you hated in other people before you became a Christian and swore you would never do. 
This is this spirit of self-achievement. Believing that what you are doing is going to bring lost souls to Christ. It takes the credit away from the Lord. Number four, self-exalting condemnation. Self-exalting condemnation. Well, I know the Lord. Why don't you know the Lord? I chose Jesus. Why don't you choose Jesus? Even though Jesus himself said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. It's John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said that. And yet there are those who are deeply committed to this idea that your problem is you just need to choose Jesus. It's tragic, really. It's very disrespectful toward the lost to attempt to manipulate them by condemning them. What's your problem? Why do you keep sinning? Why don't you just stop sinning? Jesus doesn't want you to sin. Be better. Be like Christ. Number five, verbal combat. Remember years ago, I was at Walmart in the soap and shampoo section. Two gals went for the same bottle of conditioner at the same time. And, and one got it and the other didn't. And then ensued the cat fight. And it was not pretty. And within two or three minutes, two of them had conceded. There was each, each person had another person with them. Two of them had conceded that the other had won. And so they walked away saying, Lady, you need Jesus. To which one of them responded, We've already got him. You're the one that need him. And I was thinking, that's some great evangelism. <laughs> but see, that's nothing more than verbal combat. Uh, it really, as you can imagine, that's an extreme example. But that's obviously a situation where th- their desire was not for someone to know Jesus. And I think many times this is the case. When verbal combat takes place, what we're doing is we're expressing the reality that we don't really love the person. We just want to win the argument. We just do what it, whatever it takes to get them into onto the donut crew. You know, somebody else to share the responsibility of doing the stuff in the church with me. And then I get a, a badge for bringing that person in, Right? That's an extreme example, but it's not a whole lot different from how sometimes people treat their neighbors. Well, your problem is you need a better church. Well, your problem is, you know, you're not going to church on Sunday, you know, whatever. This list of things, you get into this spiritual verbal combat with people, trying to explain things to them that are not rooted in a heart of compassion. It's it's beating others into spiritual submission with scripture baiting and scripture twisting, using the word of God in whatever manner necessary to make that person feel bad because they're not acquiescing to your spiritual desires. I've watched a guy recently on YouTube, Facebook, calls himself a, an evangelist. And I, I haven't seen one ounce of evangelism from him. But what I have seen is a, a pretty skilled use of a bullhorn such that nobody around him can hear themselves think, much less talk. And when people are asking, hey, could you please turn that down? We're, we're trying to do some work here. You know, we're, we're trying to make some money in what we're doing here. Oh, this is the word of God. It must be told. It must be louder than everything else. Oh, don't you know you're a sinner? You need to repent. You need to know the Lord. That's, I mean, who's that going to win? Right? You know, who really, think about it. That kind of activity... You, re- you, th- you really think that anyone ever became a Christian as a result of that kind of conduct? I have nothing against open-air preaching. 
Nothing against open-air preaching. But open-air preaching and spiritual manipulation are two very, very different things. And when the when the person who engages in that doesn't get what he wants out of the people that are not even listening to him, what does he do? He engages in verbal combat. It's not helpful. It does nothing to persuade the lost that that person is an ambassador for Christ. Number six, workplace witnessing. Oh, I'm a police officer and I share the gospel everywhere I go. It's not what you're paid to do. Well, I'm a school teacher, and so I I share the gospel with my children at school. It's not what you're paid to do. Well, I don't care what the law of man says. I'm going to obey the law of God. Where does the law of God, where does the word of God require you to share the gospel at your workplace? You're paid by a boss who's in charge. And he doesn't want you talking to people about the Bible because when you're talking to people about the Bible, you're keeping him from making money. Yeah, but I have to share the gospel. It's on my heart. You know what should be on your heart? Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Give you a second to turn there. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, slaves, you say, well, hold on now. Well, you don't see the word employee in the Bible. And so the slave master context in the scripture is parallel to the employee-employer relationship in our day. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. You see, this is Christ's command. Your, your earthly employer says to you, listen, I really don't want you talking to people about spiritual things when you're supposed to be doing filing, when you're supposed to be writing code, when you're supposed to be putting out a fire. You know, whatever it is you're doing, that's what you are to do. I'm not paying you to take time away from your responsibility on the job. Oh, and by the way, to take time away from them from doing their job. I'm paying you to do a job. You're to obey your earthly master, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers. Right? In other words, don't do it insincerely. Don't do your work for your boss. You know, don't just stand and work hard when he's in the room. Boss is out of town for a week. He's going on vacation. Woohoo! No, not for eye service. Not for the sake of being a people pleaser. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You ever think about your workplace like that? You get to work, clock in, or however you, you know, whatever you do first, sit down. You know, sit at your desk. Get out whatever you're going to work on. Do you, do you start in that moment by choosing to fear the Lord? That's what the text tells us to do. That's how we are to approach the workplace. So if I'm going to fear the Lord, I have to share the gospel. Not with your mouth, you don't. Not while you're at work. You say, what about when I'm on break? It's your time. Do whatever you want. If you want to share the gospel on break, share the gospel. But while you're working, while you're paid to work, work. And do it out of fear for the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You say, well, if I'm serving the Lord Christ, doesn't He want me to share the gospel at work? I guess not. (laughs) Because He's telling you to do your work heartily as unto Him. Do you see? Do you understand? That that then gives you the ability. 
It gives you a platform. It gives you credibility to share the gospel outside the workplace. Why would, ha- why would one have any interest in what you think about things eternal if you can't even do your job? You're not paid to share the gospel. You're paid to do your job. And by the way, you're actually stealing from your boss. Think of it that way. That's what you're doing. Your boss pays you to do something and you're doing something else. And by the way, it's, a, it's the absolute worst testimony that you could have for Christ. I remember years ago, I knew a gal who said that she actually took pride in the fact that she read her Bible all day at work. Eight hours. Read my Bible all day. Really? Yeah, it's the Bible. You're saying I shouldn't read my Bible? You see, that's always the response, right? From the person who doesn't want to adhere to what the Scripture teaches and requires. Oh, read my Bible at work. Bible reading is good, therefore I should do it. Not at work. Unless you're on break. Number seven, one more thing that is not evangelism. Churchless preaching. Churchless preaching. I know, I know, I have to define each of these for you. Maybe they're not the best terms in the world, but you'll get it when I tell you what I mean by it. Churchless preaching. Maybe you do get it. The idea that going out and preaching the gospel without being under the submission and authority of the local church is evangelism is dead wrong. It's not evangelism. The guy who's not connected to a local church, but he's out there sharing the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Simple question. What in the world is he evangelizing them to? If not the church. Well, he's evangelizing them unto heaven. You don't bypass the church to get to heaven. There's no such thing as a churchless Christianity. No, the church doesn't save you. That's not what I'm saying. But everything in the scripture, where there's any indication of what it means to be saved, it is that we are always called to be holy among the church. Ephesians 4, verse 11 says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, that's the goal. That's the idea. The evangelist, the the man who would say, I'm called to evangelism uh, in terms of leadership within the church, I must be then responsible to equip the saints. What does the evangelist do? Well, he goes out and shares the gospel. That's not, that's not really what he does. The evangelist equips the saints to share the gospel. Are you saying he shouldn't go out and share the gospel? I'm saying no. As he equips them, he should go with them. But the true evangelist is not primarily the person that goes out and shares the gospel. He is primarily, fundamentally, the person who teaches others within the context of the church what evangelism is. I've I've often wanted to ask the question, where in the scripture do you see anyone evangelizing others not unto the local church or even unto someone else's local church? Well, I go out there and I share and I send them to other churches. What do you know about those other churches? Do you know whether or not those other churches are even communicating the gospel? What if someone does get saved under your evangelistic efforts and they go into a church that's committed to work salvation? Now what happens? 
Oh, and by the way, what about this? What if that person that you were faithfully evangelizing was rocky soil and the seed did not take root and so they think they're in Christ and then they go to a church devoted to works salvation. And so now they're not only convinced that they were a Christian when they weren't based on a false conversion, but now that's being cultivated. I don't see the idea of evangelizing anyone unto another local church other than the one that you're serving in. Oftentimes folks that are getting caught up in this realm of churchless preaching belittle the church. Same guy that I've watched these videos for recently does a little video before he does the main video in his car on his way there. and He says, hey folks, you need to pray for us as we go out. You don't want to know why? Because it's really easy to sit behind your comfy, cozy pulpit That's the easy work, but we're out there doing the real work of ministry. What what do you think the Lord Jesus would say about that? What do you think Paul the Apostle would say about that? What do you think Peter would say about that? When we are called to shepherd the flock of God among us, when we are called to teach the Scripture in a substantial way by studying hard under the dominion of the Holy Spirit and communicating truth in such a way that it's actually going to provide spiritual growth. Personally, I don't think of it as being comfy or cozy. I love to preach, I love to communicate the Word of God, but this is no simple task. This is not something that I wake up in the morning and say, "Eh, I think I'll, I don't know, I'll go to 2 Corinthians, we'll see how that works. Paul commands the teacher of God's Word to agonize. He is to labor and toil in the study and the teaching of God's Word. So the idea oftentimes from those who are out there doing truly a non-evangelistic work, but calling it an evangelistic work, is hypercritical of those who are truly doing biblical Christian ministry. Why? Because it makes him feel better about his lack of accountability to the church. He often engages in a vocal war on the public with some sort of voice-elevating device. You know, what do you do when an unbeliever scoffs at God's word? What should you and I do? Should we scream louder, turn up the volume loud enough that the unbeliever will cover his ears because the Word of God is so important? Let the volume be so high that they can't think about the message, much less respond? No, I think actually that would prove that we are simply obnoxious and not worthy of being heard. The guy who blasts others to get his point across proves that he has been unable to do so with his life. Number eight. Track shoving. Track shoving. I knew a gal years ago who, after lunch, instead of leaving a monetary tip, would leave a, leave a track. Now imagine you being that waitress. Oh, this is great. I didn't want money so I could feed my kids. I want paper with Bible verses on it. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you come back and eat here every day, three times a day, because this is really all I want out of my job. I don't want money. I don't want to be paid for what I do. I want somebody to shoot Bible verses at me. Oh, wow. Now I know the meaning of life. Can you tell I'm being a little bit sarcastic? I've seen it so many times. I've seen it. And too often that person thinks they're being spiritual. Meanwhile, they're saying to that, Poor waitress who, in some cases, is single, got kids at home, just trying to stay afloat. She's saying, you know, avoid Christians because they're really stupid. She may as well be saying that. 
More often than not, the gospel track simply salves the conscience of the person passing it out as well as the person receiving it. I didn't say always, but honestly, I think more often than not, that's what it does. It salves the conscience of the person handing it to someone while it salves the conscience of the person receiving it. Why? Well, it eliminates a need for a relationship. But the person who receives the track, can I just tell you that you've been out there, if you've been out there passing tracks out, that a large percentage of those people who are actually taking them from you consider that to be the way to get you to leave them alone? They know that that's the key because they know that you think you've accomplished something by getting that track in their hand. Now listen, I am not against tracks. I bought some last week, just so you know. And we're going to provide them for you. But we're going to provide them for you so that you will use them in a context where it makes sense. You're beginning to have a relationship with someone. You've got the gospel on a piece of paper. And there's some indication to you that this person might actually be interested in what you have to say. So you give that to them, and it's a low-cost way to, to help them understand the gospel. But you're not saying to them, you know, here's the way. <laughs> you're saying to them, here's an opportunity for you to reach something that could actually be helpful in our relationship. In addition to the fact that the scripture never tells us to overpower a lost and dying world with vocal volume, God commands us to stop where, where there is no audience. Again, I'm, I'm going to refer to this guy that I've been watching on Facebook and YouTube. He seems to be completely insensitive, but also disinterested in the reality that the people he's talking to are not listening to him. In every single video I've watched, nobody's listening. Nobody. Not one person. And yet I read the Facebook posts and he talks about how wonderful it is to sit and talk with people eye to eye. It's not happening. What you do see on the video is people turning around and walking. One guy actually said to him, I don't want to talk to you. Please go away. And then what does he do? He turns and beats that person verbally into the camera. Saying, did you see that, folks? There's a, there's a sinner. He's not repentant. He doesn't want to know the Lord Jesus. Did you see that? How does he know that? Maybe he just didn't want to talk to the obnoxious guy with the bullhorn. I don't want to talk to the obnoxious guy with the bullhorn. And candidly, I don't want to go to market night anymore. Not because I don't like market night. Because there's a guy down there yelling at people with a bullhorn. I'm afraid of what I might say to him. (laughs) So much of the misconception about evangelism is born out of a man-centered idea that defies God's commands. Listen to this from Proverbs 9. Listen closely. Turn there if you like. It's probably a good idea. Proverbs 9, verse 7. Proverbs 9, verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. And then a command. It's pretty clear. It's black and white. Do not reprove a scoffer. (laughs) But what happens in that bullhorn context most of the time? There's an argument with the scoffer. 
In fact, what do you got? You got two scoffers. Do not reprove a scoffer. Or what? He'll hate you. And that's what I see happening. Those people who are insensitive to the condition of the lost soul, but also disinterested in a real relationship, a real opportunity. Another one of these guys I've seen with a bullhorn, you know, he's marching down the street, you know, just screaming Bible verses about repentance, which is, you know, repent, we want repentance, but screaming Bible verses about repentance, it's not helpful. He's doing this, and one guy tries to approach him, and as he asks him questions, the guy with the bullhorn ignores him. What does that tell you? He's not interested in a relationship with the guy. He's not interested in a venue with the guy. He's not interested in a platform to be able to share truth with compassion and with love. What's he interested in? He's interested in the ability to tell people, I'm an open-air preacher. And I got a big bullhorn. And I'm telling people to repent because that's what Jeremiah did. He told people to repent. And you want to say, oh man, praise God for your heart attitude. So tell me about these people that have repented. Oh, nobody repents because they don't know how to repent. Right? And, and how are you helping them? I'm telling them to repent. All too often, it's, it's a sad reality. They think they're doing God's work and they're doing nothing more than salving their own conscience and in some cases, salving the consciences of those who refuse to listen to be screamed at with a bullhorn. Proverbs 9, verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Oh, but listen to this. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. You see the contrast? So who do we give the word of God to? The one who will hear it. The one who will listen. The one who will receive it. Verse 9. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. You say, but wait a minute. This sounds like a guy that's already saved. That's right, but the concept holds true for the unbeliever that if he's a scoffer, he's not going to listen to you. So what do you do? You share truth with the one who won't scoff. You hope that he becomes the righteous man, right? And then what do you do? You keep giving him truth. But on, on the other hand, many times there are situations where someone tries to correct the scoffer, and then maybe they reach some sort of agreement. The scoffer, who is still a scoffer, has made some sort of fleshly decision. And the individual keeps giving them truth. But what does he do with it? He rejects it because he can't ingest it. He's not the righteous man. So the evangelist, who would have a true effect in someone's life, a true spirit-filled effect in someone's life, ought to be looking for whether or not the person that he's attempting to evangelize, the purpose person that he's attempting to edify and strengthen is actually receiving the word of God and indicating so uh, by an increasingly righteous life. He's increasing in learning. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So yes, we do preach repentance. We do preach the holiness of God, but we don't jam it down people's throats. We don't do it in a way that's only going to offend. I heard one person say recently, the gospel itself is offensive, but you don't have to be. Evangelism is not about being obnoxious. It's about communicating the love of Christ and doing so in a way that actually makes spiritual sense. Being sensitive to the condition of the unbeliever. 
I'm still in my introduction. <laughs> so we'll finish with the introduction. And I'll pick up with points one and two in the next coming weeks. In Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus says this, and it's, it's very congruous with what we've just looked at in the proverb, in Proverbs 9. Matthew 7, Judge not that you be judged. Anybody ever heard that passage misused? <coughs> Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus goes on to explain how to judge? Which would indicate that he's not saying here, stop all your judging. Now, fast forward in your minds, don't go in your, in your Bibles, fast forward in your minds to 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul tells us, we are to judge the body, not the world. The body judges the body. God judges the world. Christians exercise assessment of each other's lives. We do that out of love for each other because we don't want to see a false convert spiral down into an eternity of torment thinking that he is in Christ because of some fleshly involvement that he has had in this world and maybe even in the church. So the body judges the, the body, 1 Corinthians 5. God judges the world. Here in Matthew 7, Jesus explains what true judgment or true criticism, true um, constructive criticism, you know, an honest judicial expression of wisdom looks like. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. That's the point. Be careful that the expectations that you have of others are much higher than the expectations you have of yourself, specifically when it comes to spiritual conduct. Uh, verse, uh, the remainder of verse 2. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. In other words, be careful of the expectations you have of others. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then this. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. Two metaphors, both with strong terminology, pointing out what? There are those who would appear to be brothers. There are those in the church who are tares among the wheat. And many times the sad reality is that we invite people into the church without giving them any idea of what it means to be a Christian. We give them some superficial expression of some verbal incantation. Just say these words, we'll put our stamp of approval on you with... Welcome to the family of God. And then they begin to reveal the reality that nobody ever really took them the time to help them understand what it be means to be reconciled to a holy God. Oh, and then guess what? They start exhibiting sinful conduct. So what do we do? With a log in our own eye, we try to help them with the speck. It's impossible. It's impossible. And many times once the log is removed, we realize there is no speck 
Our vision was impaired. What we thought was sin wasn't in many cases. But so often, evangelism that takes place within the context of the church, where there are tares among the wheat, we are promised there will be unbelievers among the believers within the church. It's not God's design. We're promised it will happen. Many times what we do, instead of removing the log from our own eye, we attempt to correct the scoffer. I stopped doing this a long time ago. The minute someone shows a disinterest in the Word of God, I stop. It's the command of the Bible. Stop it. Stop giving what is holy to what the Lord refers to as, as dogs. Stop giving pearl of great value to pigs who just want to you know, wallow in the mud. Right? You get the picture. It's not unkind. The idea is that man is totally depraved. And so his sinful condition is not something that you can arm twist him out of. If a person slips into the church, he's not a believer. No one communicated to him what the gospel is. No, no one told him that humility is expected of him. Repentance is expected of him. Turning from his false gods unto the one true God is expected of him. He was just told, you know, sign on the Sunday school registration form. And if you don't sign it, I'll sign it for you. You know, whatever. He's, he's just told, you know, just bring, just bring donuts every six weeks. And what do we do with it? (laughs) We place these ridiculous expectations on him. We continue to give to him what is holy when he can't receive it. He's got no capacity for it. Continuing in Matthew 7 verse 15, Beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Ooh. Right. See, there are those who will slip into the church with an agenda. There are those who just slip into the church because they just want a nicer place to hang out. But there are those who slip into the church with an agenda. That's why one of the reasons why we're very, very, very committed to training men to be shepherds who would protect the flock. A man who, you know, after a substantial period of time does not show an interest in becoming a shepherd you got to wonder whether or not he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. In due time, the man who is maturing in Christ recognizes that the body of Christ needs protection. You say, well, what's that time frame? I don't know. I don't know. But in due time, is it two years? I don't know. Is it five years? I don't know. But a man who is overwhelmed by the power of the gospel that's brought him to the place of forgiveness for his sins and is exhibiting zero interest in bringing others to that place where they have forgiveness for their sins. He has no interest from protecting the flock, no interest in protecting the flock from false teachers, false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. who would have the flock destroyed. If he has no interest in that, why does he not? Again, one of the reasons that we put so much emphasis on discipleship. And it's available. It's readily available to every man. Verse 16. 
you will recognize them by their fruits. It's not hard to know, people, right? Uh, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. A man proves who he is by his conduct and by exhibiting the things that are important to him. Out of the mouth speaks the heart. Verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, this is the contrast. This is the distinction. The one whose confidence is truly in the word. He teaches with confidence in the word. But the one whose confidence is not in the word, but in something else, maybe his own persuasive ability, there's a drastic distinction between those two categories of men. He taught with authority. Why? Because the word he taught is the eternal, inerrant, all-sufficient, infallible, perfect word of God. That's where he placed his trust, his hope. And so what he communicated was the power of God's word with clarity and with accuracy. And it impacted people. In Titus 2.15, Paul essentially says the same Characteristics should be true of Titus as a young pastor. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Declare these things with all authority. Don't be concerned about, too concerned about what people think about how you dress or the way you walk. Or, you know, don't be distracting, but at the same time, don't let those things be idols in your life. Declare the scripture with full authority, with confidence in it. Don't let people disregard you because you don't declare the scripture with full authority. This is how we want to be known. This is how men, this is how you want to be known. Ladies, you want to be known this way. As someone who declares the scripture with authority, not with a, not with a, a gavel, you know, not with an iron fist, but with grace. Well, if these things that I've referred to are not evangelism, then what is? And we'll cover that next week. Father, with with a deep hunger for bringing honor to you, we plead with you to prevent us from getting the message of reconciliation wrong. Our hearts are knit together because of the powerful work that you've done in our lives. You have called us in eternity past to be set apart unto holiness. You've not called us to be a mecca of entertainment, but a deep and abiding source of joy for those who would repent and believe in the gospel. Or this is how we want to be known, but so much more than being known by this, Father, we want it to be true of us. That we would not commit failure, that we would not be disobedient, that we would not be wayward in terms of what we communicate to a lost and dying world, that it means to be reconciled to you. You've placed the call upon our lives 
Not simply to be saved unto an eternity of joy, but to be certain that the conduct and the heart attitude of our lives is worthy of that call, that our lives would be worthy of the gospel, that our lives would be worthy of Jesus Christ, something which we are unable to attain, nonetheless commands that you've placed upon our lives. And so we trust Jesus. We trust Him because of His willingness to die for our sins, that He has in fact fully satisfied your wrath, that He has propitiated for our sins. And then in so doing, He has resurrected unto new life, that we too might be resurrected unto new life. Lord, we trust that this truth, this biblical reality would be the bedrock of our time in the Lord's table. Father, help us to to honor you as we think of what it means to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.